tonight to the family of Bill, Bill Payne, his wife Deanna. Bill went home to be with the Lord December 26th. And uh, some of you know him, and um, we, uh, they're down in Texas, and we do want to remember that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And uh, Bill's in a place of no more sorrow, tears, pain, or death, for the old things have passed away. We've assembled a fellowship with God in his word tonight. Um, because there's a life for us to live one step at a time, according to God's special revelation and his word and the power of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, we're rich because we have the word of God before us. We're going to study Isaiah chapter 31 uh, tonight in its entirety. And um, that will blow your mind since we spent a month or two in Isaiah 30. But um, we'll ask God to strengthen us and to teach us what he wants us to know of himself tonight. In Isaiah 31, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us and for your plan for our lives. We know that you have an eternal purpose for every step that we take and that our decisions matter because they matter to you. Father, the choices that we make after the flesh under the sun are irrelevant because they don't last and nothing lasts. Everything is fading and passing away. But that you have an opinion of our lives and our choices. Father, this gives us eternal significance because you're the eternal God. And so we're trusting you tonight, Father, and we ask as we open your word, you'd open our hearts to know you on your terms, in Christ's name, amen. We're in that chunk of Isaiah chapters 28 through 35, the Lord of history section, as it's been called, where God is showing that despite man's inattention to him and his word, he's doing something in history, and he's in charge even uh, when we don't acknowledge that he's in charge, really, he just incorporates that ignorance into, of man into his purpose. And the ignorance of the southern kingdom of Judah is on display tonight for us thousands of years later, 27 some hundred years later. We are seeing this, and it's a proverb for us. Don't ignore the word of God uh, if you want to know what's going on in life and what really matters. We're in this chunk of, of Isaiah where you have these six woes, these six sort of sections that are structured in this poetry, where you had the woe to the drunkards in Ephraim and that's the northern kingdom and Judah. And then you had the lack of knowledge and lack of relationship in 29, 1 through 14, and then the divisors of plans. See, if you don't have a relationship with God, then you won't be making your plans according to God's uh, desires. And so you make your own plans. And that's, that's really clear. And then that's, that's 28, 29. And then chapters 30 through 33 take you from the rebellious children who specifically are going after this plan that isn't God's to the specifics of they're going to Egypt for help, for succor against the Assyrian Empire. And then the Assyrians themselves are under the ban, under God's uh, discipline, or, or I should say God's wrath in um, chapter 33. So... Um, why is it nonsense for Israel to go to Egypt for help against the Assyrians? Why is that a foolish move on their part? Because the Assyrians are the instrument that God is bringing in his divine discipline for national Israel. So to fight Assyria is, as it were, to fight the paddle. 
when you actually have to deal with the one wielding it. And they won't return to him as we've seen again and again. It's the consistent problem. Now, the problem with working through Isaiah verse by verse is that we have the same message again and again and again through this prophet. But that's okay. We need this message. It is wisdom for us to fear the Lord and to know him on his terms. And there's always wonderful application for us on this simple thought of stop pretending as though God is not there. He is there and he has an opinion of our choices. We said that these could be broken down between chapters 28 and 33 as a moral failure in the nation because they've rejected relationship with Yahweh and gone into idolatry. And so they're living their lives as, if there's no, as though there's no Yahweh, as there's, there's no God. And then the, the follow-on problem will be when God brings discipline, they're going to try to relieve the, the pain of the discipline by human agency. And it's, it's, trying to, it's two ants getting together to fight like a, like a person, like a human uh, that's taking down an ant pile. It's two ants. Okay, let's join together. We will marshal our many resources together, we two ants, to fight the human that's attacking our ant pile. That's what's happening And so it's very foolish, very silly in our perspective. And here we are tonight, woe to those who go down to Egypt. And the New American Standard, we'll just read through and then we'll work through. It says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they're very strong. I I argue with that translation. I'll show you in a moment. But the, 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 the idea is very clear that they're going down to these Egyptians for help. Against what? Against Assyria. For what? Because Assyrians are going to invade them and destroy them. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord, Yahweh. All caps, L-O-R-D is Yahweh. That's the one who is self-existing. Yet he, who is, he, is, he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words. That's the Lord himself. But will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are Ish. They're men and not God, L. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand. I hope you can catch the interesting interchange there. Flesh versus spirit. And then the Lord, who is spirit, is stretching out his hand. Meaning all the things that he wants to do through history, through all the various uh, secondary causes, is stretching out his hand. There is no physical hand of God in the story. It's the Assyrians. But see, see flesh versus spirit. And now it's entering into the realm of flesh and blood and military affairs. Look up here, please, if you're, if you're with me. If you're my child, you look up here and read the Bible with me. The Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. Okay? Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, he will not be terrified at their voice or disturbed at their noise. Who's not afraid? The lion is not afraid of a band of shepherds. They haven't met David, right, in 1 Samuel 17. But, um, but just as a lion is not, doesn't care that the shepherd is saying, hey, hey, get, get away. Get away from that sheep. That's the way the Lord's going to be in his wrath. He will not be terrified at their voice or disturbed. So the will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion on its hill. This is God's making war against Mount Zion. And see, the anti-Semites are like, yeah, those people. We'll keep reading because God brings discipline and wrath, but he also brings blessing and healing for this, these people on Mount Zion. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. Oh, I thought he was coming to make war against it. He is. He's bringing the Assyrians to discipline his people, but they're his people. 
And like a flock of birds, like flying birds of the Lord of hosts will protect, protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. And so here's the obvious wisdom. Listen, this is so simple. Return to him whom you've deeply defected, from whom you've deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols. He'll cast away his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. And I don't know why they translated that way. That's a very interesting thing they did. And I have a little bit of a difference. And the Assyrian will fall by a sword, not of man. Hmm. That's a pretty specific prophecy. The Assyrian, sure, will fall by a sword not wielded by man. And a sword not of man will devour him, so he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his prince will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. You really don't want to mess with Jerusalem. You really don't want to mess with the apple of God's eye. Just, it's... It's a good cautionary tale. It's again, it's almost 3,000 years old in our time, but, um, but God hasn't changed and Jerusalem has, is still Jerusalem. Well, anyway, let's, let's look at what's happening here as we'll go through verse by verse. That's what it looks like in Hebrew. And, um, and I, I won't, I'll give you a minute to take that in. Okay. And then, <laughs> woe to those, hoy, woe. There's your word, woe, where you get oive in the Yiddish, uh, I'm told. Get my laser beam. Woe, this is that structural marker all through these poetry poems. Woe to those who Yerod, who descend or go down to Egypt for help. What's wrong with going to get your brother, your buddies down down in Egypt to help? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of thematic problems. Um, have y'all read Exodus? Uh, um, God broke them out of Egypt. That's the big origin story of the nation. Is that God is the God, the God who created everything is the God of these people. That's why they rest on day seven, just like the Creator did. And so they belong to the Creator, and He broke Egypt down to break them out. And He even hardens Pharaoh's heart. He hardened Pharaoh's heart to make it so that He had to force it and break them out. And you have the, the Red Sea deliverance. There's a lot of thematic issues of them going down to Egypt for help against Yahweh's wrath. Um, how obtuse. Do you have to be to try to fight God with Egypt? Is this like a rematch? Is this, is this Rocky II? Are we going to try to do it again? Because last time Egypt fought Yahweh, they lost, right? And so just some interesting thematic ideas here that Egypt is your hell. If Egypt is, is the one you're going to fight the Lord with, you're probably going to lose. Upon horses, they sha'an. We haven't had this word for, uh, for, for faith yet. But this is the word that is going to be the word that drives everything through this little, this little poem is the word, words for faith, the theme of trust. They're going to trust in Egypt because of their many horses, their many chariots. They lean for support. Now, this is a, an imagery word that like prop up, like when you prop yourself up, you're sha'an, you're, you're resting for support on something. And it's, it's spatial that way. It's a physical sort of descriptive word. So upon horses... The idea is that there's cavalry forces so they can rest or rely on the, the support they'll receive from the horses. It doesn't mean that they're actually leaning on the horses physically. It means that they're trusting in the horses. It's faith. And they, and they batach, a synonym for faith, for, for re- resting. They rely upon chariots because, literally, because many, for Rav, because many, because there are many. So they're, they're all about the cavalry forces of 
the Egyptians. This is apparently what happens on the street in, in Jerusalem in the time that Isaiah is writing. And people are saying, well, I mean, we've just, there's no other choice. We just have to go get some help from Egypt. Hey, after all, they've got chariots. And you walk down the way a little bit over to the barber shop, and the guy's like, well, you know, they've got a lot of horses. And you keep walking around the corner and over by the library, the librarian's saying, shh. And then, but she says, but you know, the Egyptians, they've got chariots and a lot of horses. At least we can count on them for that. And everybody's kind of like, yeah, the Assyrians, maybe the cavalry forces of the Egyptians be able to, to defeat the Assyrians. And you do. It's a game of empires. You've got these big, massive empires with their, mil, their massive militaries and their, their pagan, you know, local gods that they think that are, they're, they're being supported by and they're serving. And so Egypt is, Egypt is on the, is down in the southwest, and, and uh, Syria is over in the northern, to the, to the northeast, and so Israel is in the middle between them, and so obviously we just have to go to one or the other, so which is it? And so they're looking horizontally at the various empires in the chess game, and they're forgetting the one playing the game, that they belong to the God who rested on day seven, that that's look up. Look up off of this map into the creator who is arranging these things. See, their only real hope is Jesus. It really is. Their only hope for any geopolitical stability and for the kingdom that's been promised in the land that's promised to them is David's greater son ruling on David's throne. They've been told this. They know this is coming, or they should, but they've forgotten. And so they don't really know God's word anymore. And so they're just doing what seems like, you know, after the flesh, just the reasoning just dictates that we go to Egypt. They rely on chariots because of many and upon horsemen because they are exceedingly numerous. There is a synonym here for being many, and it's numerous. It's a word for number, not usually strength. That's my, my quibble with the New American Standard translation. But, um, but anyway, the point is that they have power because they have so many horses, so, uh, such a large cavalry force. I love cavalry. I'm a Christian. I love the cavalry. No, I didn't say cavalry where Jesus was crucified. Cavalry. People that ride horses into battle. That's Jesus in uh, Revelation 19. He comes back on a white horse, not on a donkey in peace, but on a charger, on a stallion to come and, and vanquish the enemies of Israel. That's Revelation 19. Um, I love cavalry, but it's not an end in itself. And it certainly isn't enough to take down God in his bringing discipline through the Assyrians. So they rely on these things. It's a point of faith for them. And they do not look upon the Holy One of Israel. Do you see this synonymous idea of relying and resting or, or being supported by something and then looking to the Holy One of Israel? Look up. Always look up. This is the redirect step when you've got something going on in your life. The immediate application is when you're struggling with something that's attacking you, that's, that's a cause for your, you to be legitimately afraid because it might cause you to lose something you don't want to lose, like your life. Don't look at the problem so much as the God who is the solution to your problems. I mean, even if you die, the promise is the resurrection. He solved your death already. He's already solved the problem. So they look up, and they don't look up. They don't look upon the Holy One of Israel and Yahweh they did not pursue. I didn't take time to put it in colors, but look at, they put the verb here. They did not look upon, and they put do not pursue. They put the verb at the end, beginning and end, which means the Holy One of Israel and Yahweh is the focus of the little chiastic structure, Hebrew poetry. They say, remember, they say the same thing twice. They say they did not look upon the Holy One of Israel, and then they say Yahweh they did not pursue. And but the focus is the one that is in the middle, the Lord. And that's a good focus for us all to adopt. 
In verse 2, furthermore, he is wise. And so, Begum, we'll quibble about what this is. Your Bible says also, but it's, uh, they don't look on him, but he knows what he's doing. He has uh, chokmah. This is the word for wisdom as a verb. He is wise. And he will bring ra, evil or natural disaster or an undesirable outcome. You know, like here, um, it's not quite raw when the wind blows a little bit and we lose power for a couple days. But if something took down the power grid, that'd be really bad. That'd be uh, 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 quite a disaster. And the Lord is going to bring this undesirable consequence on the, the southern kingdom, which will be Assyria. His words, literally, and now this is a little bit, a uh, little bit rough, but his words, he will not cause to turn back. So you could say he won't rescind what he said he would do. He's made the de- decision, and you can't get the decision back on this. You're not going to be able to argue with him uh, back. He's decided. He's, his words, he will not cause return. He will arise against the house of um, those who do evil. Well, when you say it that way, right, Lord, go for it. You know, go get them. When you say, Judah, well, that's your people. let's keep it the house of those who do evil. The house of the evil. We'll put it as uh, a consequence of their own wickedness, which is how this works. There is a cause-effect relationship between God's wrath or discipline in this case and the behavior of those being disciplined. They're the house of the evildoers, those who do evil. And against those who make calamity, against uh, the, the, the ones who make disaster or evil or woe. And so God is... Uh, uh, making wrath against the arrogant, and he's giving grace to the humble. And this is, uh, this is you could try to beat him, but you're going to lose. And that's really um, what verse 2 is saying. And now let's do the math. Let's do the simple, logical reasoning here. Egypt, v'metreim, and Egypt is Adam. A-D-A-M, Adam. Do you know what that word means? It means Adam. In Hebrew, and that word means a lot of things that are related. It means red dirt boy. It means man. Uh, it means, um, in this case, mankind. Egypt is Adam and not Lo El. He's not El. See right here, Adam. He's Adam and not El. Literally, watch this. Mitraim Egypt Adam Velo El. Egypt is man and not God. That's what that says. First year Hebrew students are like, that's exactly what that says. And it doesn't have a verb. And it's one of the most profound statements that you could ever make. You could put my name in this for instead of Mitraim, which is Egypt. And anytime you see Egypt in your English Bible in, Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's this word Mitraim. That's the name. I don't know how we got Egypt out of that. But, but it's probably a very interesting story about Latin. But anyway... Don't say Mitzrayim, say David. David is man, Adam. He's mankind and not God. You could substitute other names, like all of our names, right? It's very profound thought. But this is the, the simple math of you're fighting God, but you're just a human. Remember the, the image of the ant fighting the human. It's really silly. And, but yeah, here we go. Egypt is man and not God. And their sous, their sousay and their horses are basar, flesh, 
velo ruach, their flesh and not spirit. So you're fighting a spiritual problem. You're fighting God who is spirit with horses that are flesh. Where will you hit God? What will the horses charge at? What are your, even if you have scythe chariots that have the, on the hubs, they have swords, like curved swords that, that spin, you know, Ben-Hur style. They had them. That was a big part of the ancient uh, cavalry forces with chariots. Why not? I mean, you've got, you've got spinning motion. You might as well put swords on that. Turn your chariots into blenders. That's what they did. Where are you going to ride that chariot to to fight God? That's the idea. But this is how we do. We all, we're all here. We all think that what we're dealing with is what's in, the, in front of us, what the, the circumstance and our moment, and we're not thinking to look up at the God who's in charge of the circumstances. And so that's uh, very applicable here. Their horses are flesh and not spirit, and Yahweh will stretch out his hand. And I think that's hilarious because now you're personifying God as, well, you're, you're, you're giving an anthropomorphism of God having a hand, which is a very common thing to do in the Old Testament, the hand of God. The hand of God in this case is the Assyrians. <laughs> he will stretch out his hand. So, so you're going to try to fight God with your fleshly horses, right? But God's going to bring his hand. And it's going to be what? It's going to be all the situations that he arranges to bring whatever discipline he decides down on you. And what is your only way out of this? How do you stop the bomb from going off? How, what green wire can you cut to stop this from happening? Right? You can only go to your father and throw yourself at his feet and say, save us. Please stop this. Relent. Save us. That's all you could possibly do. It's what the, it's what the Ninevites did with Jonah's preaching. The Lord will stretch out his hand and he will stumble he who helps. The one who helps will stumble. The helper. Ozer from the word Ezer. The first time that word is used, ayin, zayin, resh, is in Genesis chapter 2, when God promises man to, to, to do us a solid. He promises that he'll make a woman, an ezer connecto, a help suitable for man, the opposite number. This is the one who helps. Who's, gonna, who's the one that helps? It's Egypt. They're going to trip up just like you will. And he will fall, nafal, the, the, one of our favorite Hebrew words, nafal, he will fall, the one who is helped, the one, the azur, the, the passive participle, the one who is helped, and together they will perish. Together they will all perish. Yadav, the word for togetherness, uh, they, will all, they will all be, come to an end or, or perish. So um, that's really, it's really not a very interesting action movie in this case, right? You know, that you get the montage of putting on the belt and you get your web gear on and you get your ammunition and your rifle and, you know, pick any, any 80s uh, Rambo or something. You, any time there's a montage where you get your equipment ready and then when you zoom out, it's ants putting their stuff together against, and that's, that's what's happening. And that's us when we forget our creator. For thus says the Lord to me, Ko Amar Adonai Eli. Thus says the Lord to me, as he growls the lion and the young lion upon his prey, which they're called upon it, a band of shepherds, literally, the, the shepherds are called upon again to the lion. For, from their voice, he will not be frightened. All that they have to offer the shepherds, the lion doesn't care. The lion just going to eat him a lamb. Just 
whatever. Do, do you have any guy with a sling? I don't care. If you don't have any slingers from Bethlehem, I don't, I'm not worried. That's what the lion says. From their voice, he won't be frightened. From their noise or provocation, he will not cringe, literally. The lion isn't scared from the shepherds. Thus, the Lord of hosts will go down to fight against Mount Zion against her hill. God is going to show up like a lion. And you can't, you're not going to be able to scare him off of it. That's a scary thought. The lion is used in so many different ways as an image in the Bible. Um, Satan is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour in 1 Peter 5.8. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a way of describing uh, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in his uh, kingly glory. Um, in uh, this case, he's like a lion that is the, the threat to the flock. And there's no, there's no relenting. This is the lion that isn't scared of the shepherds. But then we switch from lions to, to birds. And you, you've got to picture a big swarm of those blackbirds, some sort of massive flock of birds that covers up something. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect or surround, literally surround for protection, Jerusalem. To protect, to surround, to, and to deliver. So he says the, the verb twice for protection or surrounding. The birds will surround and protect to deliver and to spare and to rescue. All these synonyms for protection. He just said he's going to be like a lion chewing on Judah. And now he's going to be like a flock of birds swarming them to protect. So is he contradicting himself? No. There is a sequence of events. And there's discipline from God. And you can't. he's not going to relent with his discipline until he gets what he wants. But there's also his eternal purpose for his people and his deliverance of them. And that's what actually would happen, you know, in just a few years, apparently, from this, from this oracle. Maybe not too many years when Hezekiah prayed and God destroyed the Assyrian threat. So verse 6 is the application of the theology thus far. Return. God is going to do what God's going to do. And... I think part of the, the thought you need to have about his wrath when he says he's going to do something, when he says in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, right? Well, God will not relent on doing that. Well, except in the case that he gets what he wants, that they actually repent, which is that what happens in the book of Jonah with the Ninevites. When God says, my word isn't going to stop, it means that unless he chooses to stop it, and, and you, can, you can take it to the bank, this is going to happen. And here's the way. Here's how you cut that green wire. Here's how you get out of it. Return, return, shuv, to him against whom you've made a deep opposition. Very strange word um, to, uh, to make a depth, to make, de- to make deep, and then opposition or um, a rebellion. And so... It's a Hebrew idiom that we would probably say against whom you've revolted against greatly. But there's been this deep opposition. Would you do me a favor and check downstairs, make sure everything's going well down there? I'm sorry. I don't have my normal outside support. Return to him against whom you've made a deep opposition, O sons of Israel. This is the, the reason for the discipline. God wants a return. Now, let's apply that to divine discipline in our time. You're not going to have the Assyrians attack you nationally as God brings national divine discipline on a covenant nation that you belong to because you don't belong to a covenant nation. 
like Mount Sinai when God established Israel as his covenant state. But, but you do belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and his discipline is designed to bring you down the path he wants you to go on. His rod does comfort you because it brings you back onto the path. What's the obvious recourse when you're under divine discipline? Well, don't double down. Don't keep digging once you're in a hole. I've said that so many times in Isaiah. Stop it. Turn to him. God, have your way. Break yourself because all you're doing is warring against him. And all that's going to do is bring greater discipline. Um, I tell my children, and they could all tell you this, that when there's a, this, an altercation or a disagreement, it can boil over very quickly into a Desmond Dawes sort of insanity, like the little boys in, the, in that story of the, the, the Hacksaw Ridge guy, that you, you could easily become uh, inflamed and escalate. Well, you said this to me, so I slapped you. Well, you slapped me, so I punched you. You punched me. Okay, now what? As you escalate, that's going to eventually, so, I mean, the escalation, when they finally stop, if you have stubborn people, they may finally stop and lose teeth or have skull fracture or, or even, even death. So return to him against whom you've made a deep opposition, O sons of Israel. The obvious thing is to not escalate. You don't want to get into that kind of escalation with God. Oh, he's going to do that? Well, uh, I better stop now because it's going to get worse and God's good at making it uncomfortable for us. For in that day, every man will reject his idols of silver and his idols of gold. We have this phrase, bayom hahu, in the day the that one, in that day. In the day the that day. That's what that literally says in these little two words right here. In that day, every man will reject his idols of silver and his idols of gold. In what day? In what day? In the day that we mentioned before, that ray of hope that God's defending his people, when God finally has his way among his people in the land, they're going to reject their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which your sinful hands, literally, which your sinful hands made for yourselves. You're, you're going to say, I don't want that anymore. Well, let's start that today. Let's don't wait for an eschatological future when all of Israel will be saved. Let's run after God today is the obvious wisdom. And Asher will fall by a sword, not of a man. It will fall, Asher, Becherev. The word for sword, that's a cool word in Hebrew, Cherev, C-H-E-R-E-V, or E-B, you say the, the V with the B, Cherev. That's your standard stock word for a sword, and it can, be, um, it can be a long or short sword. It just means a sword. Asher, with a sword, not Ish, man. We had Adam before for man, mankind. Now we have Ish, not of man. They're synonyms, Ish and Adam, as we have in Genesis, man and mankind. Isha comes from Ish. Asher will fall by a sword, not of a man. So someone is wielding this sword that isn't a human. Well, in the passage, we've seen God has a hand that stretch out, stretches out, and that's what you have. The same hand that is wielding the Assyrians against Judah is going to destroy Assyria. That's the, that's the message. We'll fall by a sword not of a man, and a sword not of a man will devour him. The sword devouring is an interesting image, but that's, that's pretty consistent. In the story of Double uh, Echad in um, Judges, I think, 3. I, I think it's Judges 3. 
Um, the sword is described as having two mouths when he, when he, make, when he sharpens it. He makes this sword. You've got, you kind of got this, this. It's an action movie, so you've got a little, little action movie montage where you, you, in the middle of the story, Echad is making this sword. Then it's retro, retrospective. Now, he had made this sword, and she had two mouths because the mouth of the sword is the, is the cutting edge. And so he made a two-edged sword. That's what he slammed into Eglon, uh, the, the obese king of Moab. And the dirt came out and so forth. Um, so, so the sword devours. It's got a mouth and it cuts. And that's, the, that's this imagery that you have consistently of how this is, how this is described. In there. And it's just that's their flavor. That's just how the Hebrew language works on uh, what the sword does. It devours. Um, and it devours the Assyrians. He will not escape from the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. How did the young men become forced laborers? The young men of Asher? Well, it's, it's saying Asher like it says Jacob. It's saying the whole country. And your Bible says the Assyrian, but it's, that's translating the word Asher. And Asher is a person's name. Like Mitzrayim is a person's name. We don't really get it in English because we think in terms of countries. And they do too, but they're naming the countries by the founder of the country, by the first. The first Egyptian was Mitzrayim, and the first Assyrian was Asher, that kind of thing, apparently. So, so his young men, like Jacob's young men, if you said Israel's young men, you would think the nation of Israel's, but it's talk, calling it by the, the name of the person. His young men will be forced laborers because the geezers that were in the military are all vanquished. So there's nobody there to stop. The, the, the other military force coming in and enslaving the children. That's kind of the idea. His rock, his rock from panic will pass away, will avar, will pass by, and they will be terrified from the standard, his princes, declares the Lord. This word for standard, we had it before in chapter 30 about the, uh, the, the, the pennant or the standard, the, the flag on the mountain by itself. It's an interesting thematic idea. It, it is uh, th- there's a military formation, and when this military formation shows up, everybody's going to run in terror. And this is the death uh, that God uh, wrought on the Assyrians, would re- wreak on the Assyrians, um, and 185,000 were killed in one night. Um, and, and so on the outside, you have his rock, the, the, his strength, and his princes. On the inside, they're panicking and they're terrified declares the Lord. And his fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Uh, that last word, that's your bumper sticker for the time in which we live. His fire is in Zion, whose, bump, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. You don't want to mess with God's people. And this is where a lot of God's wrath will be unleashed on the earth dwellers, uh, we're told, in the prophetic future. All right. Um, so what's missing? What is missing for Judah? Why are they like this? Why do they think like this? Why does God bring this kind of oracle of judgment against them? There's two things. I believe there are two things that are missing that are interrelated. The first is, as we saw last time, they lack the fear of the Lord. They don't think in terms of God, his awesomeness, his magnificence, his righteousness, his holiness, and his righteous wrath against wickedness. They don't think about these things. They're pretending as we do at times, that there's no creator and that his opinion doesn't matter. And that's a lack of the fear of the Lord. And there's a reason why they lack the fear of the Lord. What do you think it is? Why don't the people in Judah fear God? 
What's missing? They don't have a sense of his revelation. They don't have his word. The rediscovery of the law under Josiah, under the, the boy king, little Josiah, when they, re, they clean out the temple, somebody's out there sweeping, whoosh, whoosh, and they're like, oh, there's some parchment over here. What's this? And they pick it up and like, oh, Deuteronomy, huh? And then they read it and read all of God's judgment on the nation for its idolatry. They don't even have any collective recollection as a group, even the people ministering in the temple, that it's wrong to have idols in the temple. They don't remember. And when they read it, they're like, oh, this says a bunch of bad stuff about everything around us. We're, this is describing us a thousand years before today. It's describing exactly how we're living. They didn't have a sense of God's revelation. And that's a theme throughout Isaiah. Isaiah 6, God says, you keep preaching, they won't be able to hear it. I'll show them through you, but they won't be able to see it. And if they did, if they could see and hear, then they might repent and return to me. And that's part of the judgment that Isaiah's prophecies, he keeps giving them the word and they keep saying, ah, give us something better. And we saw that in chapter 30. Don't prophesy to us. Give us pleasant things. We don't want to hear about this wrath from God. They don't have the word of God in front of them. Beloved, if you're here, you can't say that tonight. You can't say you don't have God's revelation in front of you. You can't say that you don't have the word of God before your eyes so that you have a sense of God's presence and his purpose and his uh, agenda. His agenda is going to carry out, be carried out. So um, I'd say that these are two really important things. And what should they have done? You could have coached them at this point. Hey, I got Isaiah's prophecy. We got a pretty good English translation. I mean, we can work with this English translation. So, um, hey, Judah, here's what you should have done. Here's what, what you could all coach them through it at this point, right? What should they have done? They should have trusted him. They should have trusted in God because he was there and they believed him. And if they had just trusted him, they would have returned. Because if you believe God and he says, I'm bringing the Assyrians, you're like, oh, there's the Assyrians on the horizon. God said he was going to do that. Oh, well, Lord, you're doing what you said. And they should have trusted him. And the, the presence of the, the Assyrian army should convince them that God is who he says and he's going to do what he said. They should have faith. And that's Hebrews 11:6. 6. Do you all know that one? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who, and the King James is better here, who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, that's what's missing. That's what's wrong with Judah. They don't trust God. They don't believe in him and his revelation anymore. And uh, so we all want to say, well, are they Christians? Well, they're not Christians. We want to say, are they regenerate? Are they actual believers? And as far as we can tell, the mass group of the nation who are operating the way they do after the flesh, uh, as far as we could tell, that's an irrelevant, irrelevant question. They do not believe in Yahweh. They don't think that he matters. They don't care what his word says. And that's why they conduct themselves the way they do. And that's why God has brought the Assyrians. This is central to your life and my life. There's not going to be another avenue to spiritual growth, but trusting him. And the way we trust him is we get hold of his word and we believe it. And the way we put that into practice so that we're strengthened in our faith is in believing we step out and act on it. And it really matters that God is there and that he has an opinion. So I believe him now. Yep, I believe he was going to send the Assyrians. I believe in divine discipline. And he can even bring discipline to me. I believe that. So I go forth tomorrow. And here I am given an opportunity 
because a, a, a boss tells me to violate my integrity. But if I do it, I'll, I'll keep my job and get my promotion. If I don't do it, then I might lose my job and my livelihood. What will you do? Well, after the flesh, you would just do whatever comes naturally. That, you know, nobody's going to care. It's just no big deal. But in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, believing in God and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, you would act in faith. See what I mean? And you wouldn't violate your integrity because you represent Him. And you would, and you would have to think that through. Just for one possible example. You could think of as many examples as there will be trials, as, as many as there are people in this room tonight. If you're out there online, there are as many different ways you could think about this as there are life circumstances that you're going to face tomorrow. And we're all facing challenges to our faith. But every test, as I've said often, is a test of faith. Our sense perception, my seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, feeling, these are not more real than special revelation from God. But we feel like it is. We think it is because we just don't have that sense of revelation. When God says it, it's more real than what I see or touch. Remember that picture of God that, that the horses are flesh, but God's going to bring his hand? You know, Egypt is man and not spirit, and the horses are flesh. Man and not God, and the horses are flesh and not spirit, but God's going to bring his hand of wrath. See, God is immaterial, but he's real. And he sustains all the material without it being part of him. And it's not a problem for him at all. And that's the, you got to get past that sense perception stuff to what he's actually saying. In other words, um, little kids, another way to look at it, little kids that can't read yet, they can see and touch and taste and smell and hear and all that. But they can't process the propositions by reading yet because they can't read what God is saying. Once you have those ideas that are different from the words, they're the, the, the concepts of the words communicate that they come into us. Once you have those conceptions, once you have those ideas, you're dealing with revelation. I mean, the word of God, word for word is revelation. What I'm saying is you're dealing, it's having its effect on you. And so the thoughts are coming in and you're having God's thoughts and you're touching something that can't be touched, seen, seen felt, or, or sensed. It's, it's special revelation. It's really a big deal. I don't mean to sound at all neo-Orthodox. I'm saying the word of God on the page is God's word. It is God's revelation. But I'm saying it becomes useful to us when we read it and understand what it's saying and we trust it. And that is its own way of coming to know something. Trusting in what God has said is a system of uh, perception. It is a system of coming to, to have knowledge. Our reasoning about geopolitics, for example, doesn't trump special revelation. That's what you're learning in the specifics of national Israel and history. They, they see the Assyrians. They see the Egyptians. What am I missing? You're not looking at God. That's geopolitics versus special revelation. Boy, did they have the answer. They had somebody showing up with the answer. He said, here's the answer. Well, that can't be the answer. Tell me something else. You think it's God? <laughs> You know, it's very interesting to me that not too many, you know, hundreds of years later, 600 years later, in Jesus' day, you had the people running the temple. They did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, the Sadducees. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. They didn't believe in the spirit. 
They didn't believe any of this. They're like um, professors in the old seminaries today, in Harvard and Yale, and like all the divinity people don't believe any supernatural. That's what they believed that people that ran the temple when Jesus came to the temple. They said, Who, by whose authority are you doing these things? It was the Sadducees. They didn't believe there was any th- such thing as a spirit in man or otherwise. And, and uh, they're the successors. They're the, they're the descendants of this generation that Isaiah is speaking to. The only wise move for Israel is to surrender our agenda to the dictates of special revelation. It's the only wise move. And I can't draw a line and show you how in every step, your specific agenda item, if you let it go and give, give God full sway and say, God, you have it. I choose that for myself, for you to have your way. That's something Jesus teaches us to do. Not as I will, your will be done. This idea of surrender, that God, you just do what you, you do what you want to do and I'll trust you and have what you provide for me. If you actually step out in faith and do that. Um, it's the only wise move. And I'm not sure why in each instance it would be the only wise move. And you might try to make your life an experiment. Most people do to say, well, what if I push this button? Well, God said, don't push that button. Well, let me see if it, what happens if I push that button. Ooh, that was bad. Let me try this other button. That, he said, not that one. He said, go over here. Let's try this button. And if you want to make your life an experiment to see, you will find out. You'll find out the thing that I don't know the answer to. I don't know how it's not going to work for you. That's not wise to have your own way. But what I do know, according to God's word, is if you will say that to him, God, have your way, and I'll trust you, and please sustain me as I trust you with more uh, insight so that I can continue to trust you. If you'll do this with your agenda and let God have it, it'll be better than you can imagine. And if you won't, you're going to be disappointed. The only wise move for Israel was to surrender their agenda. It's the only wise move for us. And I believe this is how you and I bring the fear of the Lord to bear in our lives. Do you fear the Lord? Do you think of him as omnipotent? Do you see yourself as standing next to the, the infinite creator with little old us that we barely? I mean, how much oxygen do we have on planet Earth? Because I don't know where else to go to get some more. Just imagine if he, if he changed some of the properties where oxygen sort of stopped kind of staying here. The fine-tuning, they call it, of, of, uh, of the universe, the fine-tuning of planet Earth. A little closer to the sun, it burns up. A little further to the sun, we, we, we freeze. But right where we are, it's the perfect spot. A little closer to the moon, you can't study the sun uh, the way we can in the solar eclipse. We don't really know anything about stars. A little further away, same problem. The corona gets too bright around the eclipse. There's so many things that when you, when you think of the infinite power of the creator and apparently all these things were nothing to him. He just let, let light be and light was. This is who we're dealing with. And we forget and he knows we forget and he forgives us for forgetting. Let's go over five R's. Let's do it. When you're facing a problem and you need to bring your faith to bear on the problem, whatever it is, maybe it's a problem of someone's opposing you and you don't know why. Maybe it's something you just don't understand. But before you react in anger, before you give in to your sin nature and say, um, I'll double down on arrogance, redirect. The first of the five R's, no, is not identify the threat. 
stand by. What is that? Number one is supposed to be number uh, 11. So that's bad. There we go. Got it. Okay. This is the, that's the only one I'm going to fix. So you grab. <laughs> there we go. Okay. The first one in the R's is react and redirect. I know that's two R's, but just think with me for a second. When you react to the situation, you want to react toward God. You want to redirect from whatever the thing is that you're scared of, that you're angry about, that you're having problems with. You want to redirect from your attention to that to God. Just like Israel wouldn't do. They're looking at the Egyptians, they're looking at the Assyrians. They're looking at the Egyptians, they're looking at the Assyrians. Isaiah comes along and says, hey, guys up here, like, nope, to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians. And, And what you want to do is skip that and just look up. Redirect to God, and I think the best way to do this is grab a promise from God's word that applies to you. And the New Testament has um, the clearest ones that are the easiest um, to, to grab hold of, like Romans 8:28 and Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And uh, there are lots of promises in the Bible. But the reason you want to grab a promise is because you're trying to f- have faith. You're trying to trust God. So you grab something that he said that you can trust him about. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose is Romans 8:28. Philippians 4, 6 says that don't worry about anything, but in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the promise in verse 7 is in the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you grab a promise. Now the second one is refuge. You want to go from reacting and redirecting back to God to taking refuge in him. So you want to claim that promise. You grab it, but then you claim it. You trust him about it. I'm trusting you. I believe you'll do what you said and you can do it in prayer. Perhaps prayer is the strongest way to do this because you're a personal being and you really need to communicate. So you tell him, Father, I'm trusting you that you are making this, even this thing work together for my good because I am one who loves you, is called according to your purpose. Then you personalize the promise. Grab a promise, personalize it, take refuge in God about it because you need to seek that cover and concealment under the attack that you're facing because then you've got to start thinking about it and you can't think about it while your head is down, while you're stressed out, while you're, uh, while you're just... Uh, exposed. So take refuge in God. He's got this, which gives you a little bit of space to think things through. And that's where you reflect. Reflect is an R word for thinking. I had to word, the word is think, but it's reflect. Reflect on what? What is the problem that I'm facing? What is this thing that is opposition? What am I worried about? Why am I afraid of? What am I afraid? What am I about to lose? What is this? And think about it. Don't admire the problem, as we say in the building team. <laughs> Don't polish the cannonball. No, don't, don't, don't just dwell on this, but you need to think about what's the problem. Because when we're emotionally upset about something, we don't often know what the problem is. You have to actually think this through, and this is, this is meant to be a helpful way, according to God's word, to take what he's promised you to stabilize you to then think about what the issue is. And then you want to determine why it's a threat. Why does this thing bother me? What is it about this? I think it's really important to think these things through because I don't necessarily think the problem's going to go away. I don't think what, what that, that dragon isn't leaving anytime soon. The dragon in the Bible is Satan, and he's not leaving until the Lord finally throws him into the lake of fire. So 
So you got to think through, why is this a threat? What is, and the ultimate question is, what do I stand to lose? What do I stand to lose from this threat? Why is it a problem? All right. So those are the first three R's, react or redirect, take refuge, and then reflect on the problem. The fourth is to relate it. That's another word for thinking. Do you know what, hey, Nathan, Nathan, do you know what relate means? Do you know what you're doing? You're taking that problem that you just thought about and you're relating it to what? What are you related to? To God and his word. What do you know about God's word regarding this specific problem that I've thought through? See, now I'm going to surround that problem and attack it with the truths of God's word, and I'm going to relate what God says. I'm going to compare the problem to God's promises. We just had that promise. It's fresh on our mind. Let's do some more. Let's compare it to the attributes of God to his essence. How does God's sovereignty stack up against this problem? How does God's righteousness relate to this unrighteous circumstance? God's justice is ultimately going to prevail. Does God love me even though he's letting me deal with this? God says he loves me. He says his love requires that I uh, grow a little character as I trust him through these things. See, I can take the essence, qualities of God and start applying them to the problem. Comparing God's attributes to the problem, I can also compare this present circumstance to my eternal destiny. That's one of the big ones that grabs some more of God's promises. What has God said he's going to do with you? Does your life really not matter just because you're not enjoying the thing that you want to enjoy right now? Is your life really not matter because other people are saying it's not, it doesn't matter? Right? God says eternal significance for each one of us because we have Jesus. Eternal significance. And that's the only significance we really have. Right? And that's a totally different way to think about it. So whatever the problem is, compare it to your eternal destiny. And then because you've done that, obey the commands of Scripture to rejoice. Don't walk around broken about your trouble. You need to rejoice in your so great salvation. Rejoicing is commanded in Philippians 4.4. And it's not rejoicing in the problem. It's rejoicing in the Lord because we've related this problem to the Lord. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this joy in us. And it follows logically from our salvation as we read in 1 Peter 6. So we react to redirect, we take refuge, we, uh, we reflect, we relate the problem, and then we rejoice in our so great salvation. And that is meant to help you through uh, the faith problem that you're facing, like Israel had a problem and they didn't trust in God. You have a problem, you certainly can, and we must trust in him if we're going to make an advance. Our Father, thank you for the promises you've given us, for the plan you have for us, for our eternal destiny, and the riches we have in Jesus Christ. We ask you to strengthen us. Whatever the circumstance that you have us working through, glorify yourself as we trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.